are listening to the Stillbirth Matters podcast presented by the Star Legacy Foundation. Learn more at StarLegacyFoundation.org. Our guest for this episode is Danielle Pollock. In 2014, Danielle experienced the loss of her stillborn daughter, Sophia. That experience inspired her to change the course of her professional and academic career. And she recently published articles about her PhD study on the stigma that surrounds stillbirth. Danielle is seeking her doctorate of philosophy, specializing in midwifery and psychology from the University of South Australia. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, let's get right into it. You recently published your PhD studies on the stigma that surrounds stillbirth. This is a very specific topic that a lot of people wouldn't think to go into. Um, Why don't you tell us how you decided to get into this work in the first place? Yeah, I am. It's a very personal reason. I lost my daughter Sophia in 2014. Um, even though I was, I suppose, relatively initially supported by friends and family, that support kind of left very quickly. I um, I lost my entire group of friends. They kind of felt that me talking about my daughter was a sign that I wasn't coping. And um, I then also struggled to have that mother label placed on me. Like I didn't know how to answer if I was a mum or not. And I had honestly put those experiences down to grief, but I suppose now looking back on those situations, they, you know, were probably unconsciously stigmatizing me. Um, And then I was kind of self-stigmatizing me as well. Um, It became more and clearer the examples of stigma that I was enduring. So when I was pregnant with my subsequent Charlie, uh, subsequent baby, Charlie, um, I was in an antenatal class full of expectant mums and I got asked if this was my first and I I felt really brave that day and said, no, um, my other baby had died. And the woman literally stepped back away from me and turned around. And then, you know, it became more dangerous, this stigma that I was enduring with healthcare professionals in my subsequent pregnancy. Um, He was growth restricted and his movements were becoming very, very weak and I kept presenting and they kept kind of putting it down to me being really anxious from losing Sophia. Um, And then I just kept hearing about this concept of stigma and how it impacts stillbirth. But when I looked into it, there really wasn't a whole lot of research into it. So I kind of just decided to fill in that gap. So before we get into that very interesting topic of stigma, you said something that resonated with me that I've heard my wife say and other women who have lost babies say, which is, I lost my entire group of friends, or certain friends um, became less important in my life and others became more important based on how comfortable they were talking about this topic. First of all, why do you think that is? And second of all, have you been able to find a new group of friends and supporters uh, in this next chapter of your life? Yeah, I think in particular the group of friends that, you know, I'm no longer, I suppose, associated with, it was they had never been pregnant. They were quite young. I was 24 when I had Sophia. So even though we were all very highly educated with psychology honours degrees, um, for the most part 
they hadn't ever been surrounded by pregnancy or babies or what motherhood was and and how losing a baby would deeply affect them. Um, I suppose when they've become mothers, they may kind of feel that intensity of the loss, but because they'd never been exposed to it, maybe that was the reason why. I don't know, you know, unfortunately, I've never had those discussions with that group those group of women. Um, I don't know if I even need that discussion anymore because I was really fortunate that older friends, um, you know, came into my life a bit more. They, you know, I suppose had distances, high school friends, they go off and do something. But when they heard about my loss, they really came back to me and, and supported me through that. Uh, when I had Charlie, I was connected to an extremely good mother's group and, I said right out what happened and that he was my second and they just embraced it. They all were like, well, if we had experienced that loss, we would have felt, we would feel the same. And so I'm very, very connected to um, a few mothers still in that group and Charlie's nearly five years old. So I've, I've had to develop new friendships um, and also bringing back older friendships, I suppose. So I'm very thankful for that. Well, that's wonderful. Let's talk more about your PhD studies. And before we talk about the specifics of it, I think it's important to get the definition of the word stigma in your opinion, because uh, I think everyone has a little bit uh, different idea of what it means. Can you explain what it means from your kind of academic perspective, what stigma means? Yeah, I think in this field, we tend to associate silence with stigma um, and be like, oh, there's a silence around Stillworth. And there definitely is. It's just I feel silence is a symptom of stigma. But if we look at an academic theoretical approach, um, essentially stigma is devaluing a person's status and identities within society. Um, if we get into more depth of the theory, it needs to involve things like labelling, stereotyping, status loss and discrimination. So for a bereaved parent, when they are labelled, they may be labelled as not a mother, and then they may be possibly stereotyped as, well, she must have done something wrong in that pregnancy to cause the death of that baby. So there's that blame associated with the mother. Um, and these statements can be, you know, seem really, really small when the person who's saying them doesn't realise that they're stigmatising statements, but things like, well, I bet you ate soft cheese and that's why your baby died. And, and we know that's not the reason why, but they have this type of questioning of the mother's behaviour and that creates a stereotype that maybe she didn't do everything she could have. And we know most mothers, you know, did absolutely everything they could to keep their baby healthy and safe. Um, then we go on to things like this creates a separation, so this us versus them mentality. And so the breed parent tends to isolate themselves from society. It all of a sudden becomes really hard to have daily conversations with someone because you're like do I disclose that I've had a baby that died or don't I do I disclose but then accept that they might not want to talk about it and am I ready to have that reaction placed on me um, so it becomes even more tiring just to have daily conversations but then we see the more I suppose dangerous stigmatization and that's when it involves examples of discrimination so mothers in my study were saying that they were denied maternity leave they were fired from their positions. They were told that they had to take a, a lower position because they felt that they couldn't possibly cope by their employer, not by them. Um, even things like just getting a birth certificate for your baby can be really challenging in some countries. And so what this essentially does is just devalue the bereaved parent and the baby, and that leads to what stigma is. 
So I would imagine the vast majority of folks with their PhD who are doing research on a certain topic don't have as strong of a connection to that topic that you do on stigma and stillbirth. Do you find your personal connection to this topic as advantageous as you approach the studying, or do you find it as challenging because you come into it with a very personal story and possibly even a bias? Yeah, that was um, asked within the very first year of my PhD. We have to, in Australia, do um, a process where they kind of look at your project idea and they brought up the fact that I have a lived experience of it. And I made it very clear that I am, I'm very good at separating my story from other stories. Um, and so I was looking at the research and the data and I was like, well, I see very much a lot of similarities, but then I also see differences. So I've, I've actively always kind of separated my story out. Um, but then when I look at, you know, talk about my experiences within conferences and, and you know, in this podcast or any, uh, any other type of scenario, I find that having that lived experience is always advantageous. Um, I think we should always include bereaved parents in research and make them active researchers because I think it gains an insight that we may not even get even if we just ask preconceived questions on a group because in essence that's a researcher putting their bias on what he believe, he or she believes is important. Um, so I think there's, you know, a balance there. I try to use my training as a, you know, I understand that I've got that bias essentially from having a lived experience, but then I also use it as an advantageous thing and going, well, I can provide extra insight into those conversations. If you look at mental health stigma research, um, one of the major things that they do is make sure that there's someone who has a lived experience of mental illness in it um, in the research because of the fact that they can provide that insight that other researchers who don't have it won't be able to provide. In your paper, you talk about the power associated with stigma in our society. And power and stigma are not two words that I would naturally put together because, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of people's stereotype about the word stigma is that it's silencing. But can you talk a little bit more about the power associated with stigma in our society as it relates to your paper? Yeah, that was a fascinating concept of that I was learning about because it wasn't something I had initially put together as well. Um, but now that I've really explored it, I can see that stigma can really only occur when there's a power imbalance. So if we're looking at bereaved parents, they're essentially, you know, they could have even come from positions of power and be extremely privileged within our society, but then their identities are devalued by people that haven't experienced that situation um, and haven't had their identities um, challenged because of their experience. So then that creates, a, you know, that person's status within society becoming lower and the other group, the stigmatizers, having a lot more power associated with it. But I feel like this discussion of power when it comes to stillbirth stigma becomes really important when we talk about the role of healthcare providers. Um, you know, healthcare providers have such a pivotal role in this, I believe, because they can choose to talk about stillbirth or um, fetal movements or sleeping on your side. You know, they have the choice to give that information to the woman, and that's a huge power imbalance there. Sometimes in these podcast interviews, I get so excited that I go off on tangents and I forget to ask the most basic questions. So forgive me, 
I'm going to ask you. I'm gonna Get ask excited. You a, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> a very basic question, which is, can you just tell us what, what was your research question? And if there's anything general in general about your findings that you have not already shared, can you share that as well? Yeah. So I suppose, um, you know, this kind of really started over four years ago when I was just trying to find the statistics on the prevalence of stigma in stillbirth. Um, I was, you know, researching because I was trying to put in my PhD application and even though there was a lot of discussion from the World Health Organization, the Lancet Stillbirth Series and, and every stillbirth researcher around when they talk about stigma, no one had actually measured it. Um, so my research question was very simple. It was what is the extent, type and ex- experiences of stillbirth stigma and what that led to was because we didn't even have an instrument to be able to measure stillbirth stigma, I then developed that instrument with the stillbirth stigma scale. Um, so it's been a very long journey and I've had to do, uh, had to learn a lot of statistics that I never thought I would have to learn, but I'm excited that I have. Um, and we found the results and we believed from the stillbirth stigma scale that over half of bereaved parents actually experienced stigma what the most common form of stigma that we're seeing because there's different types is something called self-stigma. So that's when someone will internalise those feelings of um, shame and blame, um, feel like there is a mark placed against them because they've had a stillbirth and 80% of our bereaved parents um, were self-stigmatising. And that's, I think, a huge finding because it speaks to us as researchers to go, well, if we need to find an intervention in the very limited funding we're ever given, we probably need a target on this self-stigma and, and talking to bereaved parents about how um, they are mothers and how they aren't to blame and encouraging that confidence in that motherhood identity. But then, you know, we had disturbing figures that over 30% of bereaved parents actually experienced discrimination. So, you know, from workplaces and healthcare providers. And that, I think, is something we really need to explore and talks about those structural issues that we're seeing within stigma. Um, and then over 30% felt they couldn't even disclose about their still stillbirth. And I think that's just really sad that bereaved parents feel they can't even say their baby's name without feeling that there'll be consequences to that. Those are some really powerful statistics because in my work with the Star Legacy Foundation, I am surrounded by families who have experienced the loss who are not afraid to talk about it. So to hear that there's still 30% that are um, is eye-opening and and shows us that there's more work that needs to be done. Um, at the beginning of our conversation, you said something about uh, an interaction you had with a healthcare professional when talking about your loss. Can you describe what you've learned about the role of stigma in how health professionals interact with families? Yeah, I think what I'm noticing more and more is that bereaved par- oh, sorry, healthcare providers are possibly a source of stigma. And they might not even realize that they are. They might not think they're doing it and they may even have the best intentions. But what I suppose is happening is when they're choosing not to talk about stillbirth with their, with their um, pregnant woman is then when a stillbirth occurs, that brief mother now is blindsided. She had no idea that stillbirth could happen. She may have heard of what stillbirth is, but because her healthcare provider 
never sat her down and said, hey, this could be a possibility. I really need to get you to pay attention to your baby's movements and, and get to know them and, you know, sleep on your side. Um, you know, I think we're doing a disservice to our, uh, to our mothers there because the breed parents that were saying, um, you know, we had open-ended responses in, our, in the survey I put out were saying that because they didn't feel that their healthcare provider talked about them, they then felt that they weren't allowed to talk about it after it happened. So then it's just perpetuating that silence and separation and that blame because they were never discussed with it prior to a stillbirth occurring. Do you think that stigma around stillbirth is overall getting better, worse, or staying the same? Um, I'm not sure. This was the first time we were even able to capture any data on the prevalence of stigma. But what I can say is that in Australia, um, we're making some huge strides in talking about it and making it a national issue. Uh, the government finally acknowledged that stillbirth is a major health concern um, through the Stillbirth Senate inquiry that we have. They've put towards some funding for stillbirth research. Um, and I see the work that Still Aware do and the CRE Stillbirth um, Centre where, you know, they're putting out campaign after campaign to be trying to make women aware of stillbirth and what they can do to potentially prevent a stillbirth. Um so I'm seeing that discussion a lot more within the media as well and it would get getting more traction. However, I still think there is so much more work that we need to do in this field, um, you know, and it's just going to just keep going. But I think we're getting a bit of momentum, especially in Australia. I don't know what it's like in other countries, though. What recommendations do you have for families who have experienced stillbirth and maybe feeling stigmatised? Um, I feel like you, I would tell them to, to keep focusing on their strengths. Remember that after the worst pain, you're still breathing, that try and remember all your wins, even if that win was just getting up in the morning. Um, eventually, and there is no time limit on this, you may even start saying your child's name out loud. And in that itself is an act of advocacy. You may even then start fundraising or you may even go back to the hospital and challenge practices that you felt could be improved. And it's within these little acts that you yourself are challenging this, that stigma um, and you can take control of the situation and empower yourself. Um, remember, we can only really control our own actions and not the actions of others, but we can certainly challenge those stigmatising behaviours and it's within that that we can reduce stigma. One thing that I like to ask people about uh, who have had a personal connection to stillbirth or pregnancy loss is when you experience that loss, like you did of Sophia, that moment creates a bef bef distinct before and after moment in your life. You have a mm -hmm. marker in your life. There, It was everything before Sophia and everything after Sophia. And I'm just curious because you have decided to take your academic and professional career down this path, um, how would your life be different today if you had to guess? What path were you headed down and how did Sophia change your life? Um, that was an interesting question because I was talking to a few bereaved parents actually last night about, you know, what would have happened, 
you know, all of these good, amazing things that have happened because of Sophia actually being stillborn. And would we make the decision of, you know, could we choose having our baby or having all these amazing things that have happened and potentially have having saved other babies' lives? And that's a really difficult question that I now face. I think what I can say is that Sophia has made me a stronger, better, wiser person than I was prior to her. She has honestly made me recognise that it really doesn't matter what other people think and how they act towards you and their actions towards you because I've gone through one of the worst experiences in my life and I'm still standing. So she has made me so much stronger in that. Before, I would always take the opinion of others and, and try and change myself to, to try and fit in. And now I'm like, well, I don't have to do that because I'm finding my own way because of the strength that she's given me uh, and her telling me, you know, that I can survive no matter what. So I would always want to go back and have Sophia in my life. But because of her, I know that I'm a better person. Well, thank you for sharing that with me, and thank you for all the work that you're doing. I, I know that stillbirth is one of the most understudied and uh, most stigmatized topics out there, and the fact that you are studying something about the stigma associated with stillbirth is such important work, and, and thank you for tackling that topic, and, and thank you for appearing on the podcast today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it as well. And that's all for this episode of the Stillbirth Matters podcast, presented by the Star Legacy Foundation. I'm Chris Duffy. Thanks for listening.